Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Howard Budden. He's a neuropsychologist and, a, and the proprietor of SC Neuro. Uh, this is your third time back, Howard, huh? Yes, yeah. Welcome Glad back. Thank you. Thanks so much for uh, asking me to come back in. I've had a, had a great time. You are, you are the, uh, the resident neuropsychologist at Systematic now. <laughs> Glad to, I'll add that to my CV. <laughs> so, okay, real quick, just for me and everyone who's listening, what exactly uh, defines a neuropsychologist? Well, a neuropsychologist is a licensed clinical psychologist who has done a couple of extra years beyond the general schooling and uh, gotten the specialty of neuropsychology, which is the study of the relationship between your brain's health and functioning and your uh, behavior, your, your, your functional behavior out in the wide world um, in terms of your thinking ability and can you act sort of like you would want to in, um, in certain situations. So the, the long and short of it is if something goes wrong with your thinking or your brain and you're anywhere between the ages of six and death, uh, I'm the person you can come to see. I wish you lived near, closer to me. <laughs> I, I have a lot of issues with that, uh, that connection between thinking and behavior. I'm not really allowed to go out in public by myself. <laughs> no, that, that's not true. It's not core mandated. It's just appreciated by other people. Um, and, and, and as a side note, I recently... Uh, made the decision to stop taking amphetamines for my ADHD. Oh yeah, and that is it's a, there's a re- after a decade without ever really completely stopping amphetamines. Mm-hmm. There's no major withdrawal, but there is a serious. Your body takes a while to make your brain start working again. I hope yeah, it's going to yeah, work yeah. again. Yeah, there's with with any medication. Um, I mean, there's to varying degrees, but yeah, there's there's going to be that. I mean, technically, it is a withdrawal effect, uh, which is just sort of the opposite of whatever the medication does. Yeah, that's that's the withdrawal, and um, so the medication makes me think and focus, and now I am doing neither. <laughs> you, well, your body should totally um, sort of reset itself. Uh, in most cases, there's just a habituation. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm doing this without medical guidance. Uh, I, I don't see my psychiatrist for another two weeks, but I figure by then I'll know where I'm at. So anyway, yeah. this isn't supposed to be a session with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you you are currently, last time you were on the show, you were in your post-doc right. schooling, right. and now you are a couple years into private practice. Correct. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the feeling of being out on my own is like, it, it's just, it's so, uh, liberating and you're no longer beholden, um, to the, to the whims of whatever supervisors you have at the time. And not that that's always a bad thing. I mean, certainly, you know, they're there to keep you in line and make sure you do the right thing. Uh, but definitely, you know, the process is so long that after nearly a decade, you're kind of you're kind of ready to go. Well, and now the tables are flipped and you're beholden to your clients and patients. Right. Yep. I am always on their dime as it were. And, um, not only that, but, um, it's like, I, I, I'd make a point to tell 
everybody that I see that um, that it's a privilege to actually see them as a patient because you know they're they're coming in here and opening up their lives, their problems, uh, and and everything else that's deep and personal that usually gets that usually they keep inside, you know, and they don't just go advertising it around. Um, and so that's something that's to most people, anyways, that's something that's very sacred. Um, and I, I like to keep that in sight when, whenever I see somebody um, and, and never take that for granted. Yes. And then there are people like me who get podcasts and just broadcast that stuff and hope that someone who knows what they're talking about shows up. But <laughs> what, kind of, uh, what kind of challenges are you facing now that you are, are running your own practice? Good question. Um, I would say that the biggest challenges that face me on any day-to-day basis are honestly the administrative challenges of being a business owner um, and on top of the business owner there's like a, a superordinate layer of um, small business uh, healthcare owner because there are all these government agencies and insurance carriers uh, and, and so forth that have all their own regulations and guidelines and, and so forth and you're trying to you're trying to keep everything running um, I, I can't remember uh, where I read it or who said it or whatever it was but the um, the parallel was uh, between owning a small business uh, was between owning a small business and and the idea of building an airplane and flying it at the same time uh, and I feel that's apt yeah, uh, I can relate to that. So, yeah, I'm. I, you can, I, and and uh, it, it the, the, yeah, the, the the challenges are less on the clinical end. Um, so far, I mean, there are definitely there are definitely some very challenging um, sort of mysteries, I guess, if you will, like clinical conundrums. Sure. People come in with weird sort of presentations, and it's, those are those are fun. Um, well, I think the clinic, challenge right? becomes actually doing what you're good at while running a business, which there aren't very many people who are good at running a business and doing something uh, else. And I think that's, I think that's a challenge for any like small business owner is providing the service you got into it to provide while still maintaining a business that doesn't sink. Totally. Yeah, (laughs) it really is. And I want to be like, I want to be as good at the business side of things as I am at the clinical side of things. Um, in fact, I feel like I need to be right because I love what I do. And if I want to keep doing what I'm doing, then I need to be good at business. It it does help. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And, and a lot of, a lot of private practitioners, um, or a lot of people, practitioners just won't go into private practice because of all the ins and outs and that fear of, um, failure, which is, is very real. So what kind of, uh, what kind of tools are you using to make this all come together for you well good question um the the end product of what i do is a a report that just uh summarizes the results gives a diagnosis and the like um and for that i i'm finally since i'm broken free of the institution aspect um or the institutional setting i don't have to write everything in microsoft word anymore (laughs) which (laughs) which seems like you know, I guess maybe to most people a trivial thing, but to me it's not. Um, and so I type all my reports out, or I dictate my reports out in plain text, um, and then I preview preview those reports in drumroll marks two. 
Um, I've heard good things about that. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and then, um, have my own little, you know, template, see a style template for that and, and, um, kick those out one printed copy and then I've got a PDF to fax over to the provider. Um, and then there are like some proprietary things that are vendor specific for, for the cognitive testing that I do. And, um, I do probably 90% of the work, clinical stuff, face-to-face work with patients on my iPad, um, which is a very different thing in my field. It's only been in the last two years that the kinds of tests we use have become available on the iPad. And um, for the past 50 years or so, they've been just kind of paper and pencil, um, all kinds of little puzzles and things that you have, uh, that, that you administer, you lay out in front of the patients you see. And it's all, you know, the further along I got and when you started seeing the transition of, you know, you go to your family physician and they're all on laptops and, and tablets, you know, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it started to feel really hokey, um, you know, being, being in a field where we're still using paper and pencil. And so as soon as the, um, as soon as these iPad versions came out, um, I jumped on it fast. And as, as you can imagine and have had, I'm sure, plenty of experience with as an early adopter, you, you get burned a few times. Um, but, you know, if, if not enough people jump on board, then, then the product's going to die. Yep. And I didn't want that to happen. So I've, I've been on it full force since then. And, and Doing your part. Yeah, yeah, and um, and then promoting it on you know as much as I can to other neuropsychologists, um, just because if nothing else, even if this isn't the final product or if somebody comes up with a better one or whatever, I mean this is the way the world is going, um, and yeah, there's been like some pushback I guess from people within the field, and that's I understand that. Well, there's you always know, resistance to. changing especially every time i've looked into developing software for the medical industry there have been major hurdles both with getting something that could reach that critical mass of adoption to survive and then security yeah like developing for both medical and banking worlds just does not seem worth the headache to an independent developer yeah i Go ahead. What yeah, kind of so. what kind of security do you have to deal with in private practice? What are the regulations in there? That's the worst part. So that's <laughs> that's the part that um, is probably the biggest hurdle from a text technological standpoint because everything has got to be on lockdown all the time, right? And there's all these severe penalties if you have a data breach and so on. Um, and so when you talk about developing software, so there's as far as EM. Uh, like electronic health records management systems, the last time I checked a couple of years ago, there were over 3,000 of them that had been approved um, for use by the um, Centers for Medicaid. And each of those, you know, one of the, one of the big problems was um, intercompatibility, interoperability, interoperability between them. The whole idea behind moving to an electronic medical record system was uh, easier, faster transmission of data between different providers. Sure. But it turns out that all these developers rushed in when the government mandated it, and um, hospitals had to switch over really, really quickly. So developers cranked out really not great software 
at, at really rapid rates and made all of the file types like proprietary. Um, <clears throat> and so that became a huge problem. In fact, the American Medical Association and the Texas Medical Association wrote these big position papers about how they've created this additional hurdle. Um, and, and so everything's got to be locked down. Um, I'm not using an electronic medical record system. I don't have to because I'm right now a one-man show. Sure. And so I use um, Spider Oak for um, backing up and synchronizing my data between computers. Um, I'm not sure if, I don't know if you've ever uh, have any familiarity with Spider Oak. I, I do. I know what it is. I've never needed the encryption level that it provides, but that is kind of its selling point, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so that has been the, that's been the go-to for me, like the next level up in terms of security and, and HIPAA compliance and all, all that good stuff is super expensive. Uh, it goes from like spider oak, which is, you know, hundred and something dollars a year to a few thousand a year. Um, with, which is a big expense for a private practice. It's a big expense. For a one-man and, show. Right, yeah. And, and without any, and, and like I said, because I'm so small, um, the, my, my needs are fewer. Um, I don't have to administer and regulate a bunch of different people and their access to it. So I can keep it simple with that. <clears throat> um, but it does mean that, like, you know, I can't just, it'd be great. You know, my life would be so much easier if I could just store everything in Dropbox and, like, edit all my files <laughs> wherever I went and all that. It's like, but I can't. <laughs> but I can't. Uh, and it's so frustrating when you see all these great productivity tools coming up around you and you're just like, I can't use that. I cannot, you know, I'm stuck kind of where I am. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I can understand that frustration. I don't have to deal with that. And I recognize that if I did, most of what I do now would be not feasible any longer. And that would drive me nuts. Yeah, it's crazy making. It really is. Um, especially when uh, you're, you're dealing with records when I go home and every now and again, for some reason, like if they are a couple of days behind a, a Yosemite update or whatever and the sync breaks, then I've got to haul back to work and throw files on a flash drive and go back up like <laughs> sneaker net yes exactly the sneaker net and uh yes that's frustrating but at the end of the day i mean first world problems i guess right um it's it's not the end of the world if i have to drive back and forth a couple of times a year and <laughs> and it it works so yeah Okay, so one of the things you mentioned early on uh, in our pre-discussion was critical thinking skills and, yeah. and how you're using them to kind of filter the information that you deal with. Uh, is, this, is this both in your practice and in personal, or is this kind of primarily focused on your job? Uh, it, it's, it's global. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it's really everything. Once... I found that like once um, I started becoming familiar with the idea of being a skeptic and what that really meant, which skeptic tends to connote for most people to being like kind of a naysayer or negative. Cynical. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And, and it's not that at all. Um, being a skeptic just means that, um, well, like in uh, Heard It Through the Grapevine, right? Uh, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. Um, nice. And, and so you, it just means that you verify things for yourself. 
you you hear something or you read something and you recognize that like okay well i'm reading this in the wall street journal um which is historically like a reputable source right, right. are they fallible are they fallible well they have humans working for them so yes they have a uh, corrections column yes <laughs> right exactly exactly and on and on and on um and there's any number of reasons that facts can get distorted from from one person or one entity to the next like um did you ever did you ever play that uh like the telephone game oh, when you were like yeah yeah so um that it, it, think of the transmission of information it, that's really just a simplified version of it right and and so you go from the first to the second person and the message in most cases has already been distorted in some way well and it gets it gets stupider now because what i've seen more and more is people read headlines and yeah. they share headlines and they base their conversation on the statement in the headline. And headlines are more and more becoming their questions, which mm-hmm. is not news. And they're becoming sensational intentionally. While the article itself isn't sensational, they right. put the, the banner, the thing that's going to catch your attention at the top. And that's intentional distortion. Totally. And that just, you know, then someone takes that at, you know face value literally and and that becomes a topic of conversation the way they phrased a headline because not everyone even bothers to read the article let alone consider sources right right buzzfeed is not a source exactly exactly (laughs) it's an aggregate right exactly it's an aggregating machine and 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 they've got to do it as fast as possible and when you're talking about that speed of transmission information that that quantity uh, at that pace, then it, there's no time to, to go deep um, well, on there. Even, even if the headlines were just purely factual and, and summarized the actual you know, research or, or case study in the article, even mm-hmm. then you'd be asking for distortion at that speed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess without going into all of the bits and pieces of, of critical thinking, um, and, and how one goes about analyzing different bits and pieces of information, it, it, I think it's sufficient just to kind of start off with um, trying to be more mindful when you're consuming information of any kind. I mean, an advertisement on TV or someone that something that your friend said to you about something they read or something you see, um, you know, on the news. An understanding that that is not necessarily objectively factual objectively true um that there's error built into all of those sources and um and that it's helpful and honestly i mean i think it's kind of fun kind of cool to be able to go and drill down back to the original source material yeah and find out what really happened well and that's to me that's the beauty of a well-written web-based article is that everything they say they can link back to a source without having to have extensive footnotes at the bottom you can actually just say Oh, are you sure about that? And click a link and and see where they interpreted their information from. Right, right, right. Exactly. And and that came about as a slow process of um, learning to or becoming a scientist uh, through the course of graduate school, um, really getting into statistics and research methodology. So there's research, right? And then there's how do you research, um, which is a whole other beast that no one really enjoys um except for people like me that have that disease and um 
so uh, along the way, kind of seeing like, okay, you know, like you say, um, citing every source, you know, being able to back up what you say, making your arguments water airtight, watertight, whatever. Um, and I, I do that now with, um, well, especially with like, uh, cases that I work on that are of a medical legal nature. Sure. Flavor, uh, the forensic kind of cases that are going to potentially go to court that are involved in some kind of a either criminal proceeding or civil proceeding. Um, you know, I tell all the attorneys I work for, it's like, there's not a word in that report that I won't stand behind. Like I even shore up my language a little more to be more certain, like using less kind of vague descriptions. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, one, one flaw found by a prosecutor could unravel your entire thesis there. Totally, totally. And, and, um, you know, like when I was writing my dissertation, I actually, in the preparation process before like the final defense, I actually like sat there, you know, after you read through it 10 million times and tried to go through it and anticipate like what kinds of questions would they ask me about? What kind of spots seem like they're the most vulnerable to attack and be ready to address those things? And I, I do the same with these kinds of reports. It's like, you know, what, what seems less sure, what seems less certain, and then just tighten that up as much as possible and be ready to respond. As an online blogger for a long time now, I, to a much lesser extent, but I, I have to be able to defend every sentence that I write. And I, I oh, understand, yeah. and it does, it affects the way you read everything else then. Because you ask, especially in the case of advertisement and advertorials, you begin to ask what they're really saying. Mm -hmm. And you begin to, you look for that out of place sentence that is sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally misleading. Mm -hmm. That leads into everything else and changes the basis of the point of view. So how does all of this, how do these skills, especially the, the, the ability to write legal papers, how does that affect the way you see the world? Uh, it's it, it, every now and again, um, like I'm, I'm trying in, to, on a day to day basis throughout the day to be more and more mindful, right? What am I paying attention to? Um, and as I go through the day, like, and I'm those spots where I kind of can flip on that mindfulness switch. I realize that like the way that I look at, you know, kind of the things I mentioned before the ads on TV or something I'm reading in a magazine or online, like I really am sort of tuned in to every sentence it's like wait a minute that wording of that sentence feels off it are they saying this are they you know um being kind of beyond even just the grammar hammer where i'm like oh well you know the subject verb <laughs> agreement doesn't work there uh <laughs> um but <clears throat> um yeah, yeah that there's really i think that omnipresent filter and um I, I realize it being switched on more and more often where, you know, someone says something, starts to pass along some factual information. And I'm like, OK, is that realistic? Does that sound right? Um, if it's clinical, you know, if it's a patient that I'm seeing um, and they're kind of presenting their problem to me, I've got to sort of make up a, a map in my head of how they're functioning on a day to day basis. And is there some kind of piece left out? it's a little hard to explain and it's something that comes with, you know, just seeing thousands of patients. But, um, 
you know, you can see somebody now and I can see somebody now and just say like, there, there's a piece missing here. There, there's something that's not, that I'm not being told. I think um, that right there is very interesting that you are, you're interpreting not only what you hear in a session, but what you don't hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Count Basie missing note theory. <laughs> Silence and music. Yes. Uh, and, and there, so, so yeah, there, it, it comes about in different forms at different times and, you know, is context dependent, I guess. Um, but, but again, I feel like, uh, the, the base message there of like, you know, just kind of pay, pay more attention of, to what, what all is coming in, I guess, like we're so bombarded with so much information, um, which, which makes it incredibly f hard for our brains to manage that, you know, just, we're not necessarily evolved to, to keep up with, you know, constant data streams, um, pay a lot of attention to what's coming in, you know, like learn to be able to separate what's true from what's not. Um, is there any factual basis for what's being said? Um, where not even what's the source, but like, and I guess an example of that is, um, there was somebody on, on TV on one of the morning shows one time and said, uh, there was some new, new information they had about Alzheimer's research. And I can't even remember exactly what it was. And, um, my wife was saying to me, she's like, Oh, look at this. Did you see this? Did you see this? And I was watching the interview and it was nothing I'd heard before necessarily. I mean, I'm very, very familiar with Alzheimer's research. Sure. It's something I, I deal with a lot. And I said, I don't know. I don't know. That sounds kind of wishy-washy to me. And she said, oh, well, you know, this guy, the, the researcher is from, you know, fill in the blank prestigious university. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't matter either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if you're from the community college, like good research skills are good research skills. And this doesn't comport with anything. It's, it's kind of like really far removed from what we know. Um, well, and then you run into the interpretation of statistics, which yeah. I'm sure is something you deal with frequently. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and how do you manage that? I mean, um, you know, again, going back to that's the research about the research, right? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really like inside baseball stuff. Um, again, something that most people don't, don't typically enjoy and for good reason, but I don't know. I, I like it. Here's uh, a speculative question for you. Okay. Do you think that the the generations now that were raised in this higher speed information era and they have taken it for granted, do you think that they have stronger or weaker BS filters for this stuff? Oh, uh, good question. Um, you know, I would say that... I don't know. I mean, on, uh, the, my, my first response was just to say that their BS filter maybe hasn't changed at all um, just because normative is normative um, in terms of our, our, our natural ability to filter stuff out, which is a learned thing. It's a skill, yeah. right? And so you have to learn it from either teachers or parents um, or, or friends. And, and unless, you know, critical thinking has become a part of core curricula in schools, which I, I know that it hasn't, um, you know, I, I would be, well, I'd, I'd be inclined to say that it's probably about the same, um, See, which is I to say not very good. I would theorize that Facebook has been good for people's BS filters because 
you get excited about something, you share it. And, and you know, that first time you get burned, you find out this was a hoax, a parody, a Photoshop job. You right. start approaching everything as this is 90% probably fake. And there's a one, 10% chance it's real. Yeah, one, one would hope. Um, and so that's actually a, so that's a, a separate thing. So that's learning, right? Yeah. Um, you're, you're learning from being burned in the past. Um, like as we were talking about earlier, being early adopter of, you know, new technologies <laughs> and so forth. Right. <laughs> like you learn, um, and you're like, I'm never going to do that again. But then at some point you're going to take that plunge again. Right. Even though you've, even though you've quote learned that lesson in the past. Um, so yeah, it maybe has like made people a little more savvy in that way. Um, I mean, I can see that being a possibility, like, you know, because, if people are burned a little more quickly, a little more often. Yeah. Then. Well, and I frequently see shares and status updates start with the words, assuming this is real. Uh huh. Like people are, they are more critical of everything they see. And this is a recent development that I've uh -huh. seen. It hasn't always been this way. Facebook used to be, oh, I saw a picture. It must be true. Everyone oh, seems, yeah. of all ages, seem to be getting more cynical, especially the younger generations. Oh, yeah. I shouldn't I, say cynical, but critical. A, a, a few years ago, I was the like jerk who would basically reply to your, you know, <laughs> kind of post with a Snopes link or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's like the precursor to let me Google that for you. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. <laughs> and um, so that might be true. And, and I'll be honest, like this is really a reflection of my being out of touch with with a lot of uh, social media channels. Um just I, I I don't have time to do it. I mean, I know that um, it would be a, like there's getting work done and getting paid or, uh, you know, and getting reports out and getting patients seen or there's social stuff. Yeah, because uh, you would go on Facebook and begin researching everyone's claims. I, and it would right. take you twice as long as everybody else. <laughs> it's a compulsion. I can't <laughs> help it. Uh, <laughs> Um, but that's a good question. You know, maybe I'll look and see if there's any, I, I mean, I know that there's some em empirical research about the way that social media has, you know, has it, there've been people who've asked questions like, has it made us any smarter or any less intelligent, which no, by the way, um, to both. And, um, has it, uh, or has it, you know, made us like you say, like less critical or less critical, but like, um, are we less attentive, I guess, is one of the big questions. You know, is our attention being more and more divided because of more of the information available? And if so, how much? So I know that there are some um, researchers out there who've been asking those kinds of um, sort of cognitive or neurological questions. Um, but I haven't kept pace with that research. I should, I'll dig some up after we get off here. Wow. All right. So you, you have thus far made several uh, musical mentions. Yeah. And uh, starting with, I think it was uh, Marvin Gaye and Heard It Through the Grapevine. And I, I feel like the conversation we've had thus far and today indicate that music is probably a big part of who you are. Yes, in a word. Do you, uh, do, I guess, do you, um, how do you relate, I guess, uh, generationally to music? Where, where do you kind of find yourself most often stuck in the uh, chronological spectrum of music? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I feel like I go through phases and the last few years I've been kind of 
the last couple of years especially I've just been out of it almost entirely in terms of like consumption of new music and even like listening to the music that I have really honestly because I work so much in the evenings after I get home uh, and get the kids to bed and everything but uh, I think most often I don't know it goes by mood really but there was a maybe when I was in graduate school, the first few years, I went on a kick where for two or three years, I would say I listened to almost nothing but, um, country and Western. And I mean, like, 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 um, like, uh, Bob, uh, Bob Willis or, 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 um, Hank or Willie Nelson, you know, sure. the, 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 like the, the real old stuff. School stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I had heard it before I had a couple of Willie Nelson records and some Hank Williams stuff, but, um, I just tuned, I had an XM satellite radio at the time and, uh, remember those? And, uh, (laughs) and, and so I just had it tuned to that particular station and, uh, listened to almost nothing else. It was fascinating. There's so much good music. Um, a lot of it very depressing. Um, I, I consider depressing music to be among the the pantheon of music depressing songs are often the most honest and the ones that hit me the hardest oh yeah and what's totally. the point of music if it doesn't make you feel something totally I, I i know that i write my best music when you know some kind of massive event you know avalanche has occurred in my life for for good or or or, or you know for better or for worse um you know it's a like a, an outlet right well and it's also a reaction to your environment yeah. Yeah, I mean, all, yeah. all, all musical movements have been a reaction to something, a predecessor yeah. or politics or environment or yeah. your wife leaving you. Right. And, and, and yeah, so like you say, I mean, I agree that that, that stuff that really comes from uh, an experience that's been jarring for a person, you know, where they really wear their heart on their sleeve, um, that that is some of the best stuff. Did, did you... Uh, did you you because you mentioned Marvin Gaye? I have to ask. Like, did yeah. you get into early soul and R and B? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for a little while there, after I watched this amazing documentary called um, "Standing on the Shoulders," uh, "Standing on the Shoulders of Motown." Yeah, it? yeah. I I, you know I, I can't remember exactly the name, but I did see what you're talking about. It was a, yeah. So it was the documentary about the Funk Brothers. Yeah, the backing band for all those early Motown <laughs> for hits. every one of them. Yeah. For every one. Can you imagine? And <laughs> I went. So I went to and I went to Detroit when I was on one of my internship interviews. So internships right before the postdoc, um, the year long thing. And I flew to Detroit, and uh, you know, just snow everywhere. This was in January. And I was in Detroit for all of like 36 hours or something like that. <laughs> and I, I was like, I'm going to Hitsville, USA. I'm going to the Motown Museum. And, <laughs> in the and, white building. Yeah. yeah. And I did. I mean, there was no one on the street. Like the taxi driver, you could tell, was just not thrilled. <laughs> um, but, but I went there and it was me and I think a mother and a daughter. And that was it. And we got to go down into the snake pit. And... Um, where, did, where it, did it have a floor? Does it have a floor now? Because it used to be like a dirt floor in that basement. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's just it's a straight floor. Okay. Um, and um, going in there, I mean, I was almost moved to tears. It was just like such an overwhelming experience to think about 
you know, all these cats that were in there that played all these tunes, you know, that, uh, that I love so much. Um, so yeah, I got into that for, uh, I, at that point and listened to a lot of it for a while there, bought up a bunch of those old, like, um, Motown LPs, like compilations. There used to be a bunch of them out, um, you know, pick your, pick your group or your vocalist or whatever. And they were always super cheap. Yeah, um, there's there's one two disc set, uh, best of Motown, I think it's called, and it has everything, everybody who is part of that scene, and you can pick it up for like nine dollars for twenty some songs. It's great, exactly. But then exactly. there's Spotify where you can just punch in like Bill Withers and hit related artists and just go forever. Right, never ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, my mom uh, grew up a block from Tiger Stadium in Detroit, and that was where. We spent, uh, my grandparents still lived there before my grandfather got Alzheimer's and, uh, and they ended up moving to town with us. But, um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time in the lesser, uh, the less good parts of Detroit uh-huh. and Motown was very near and dear. It was like the only Motown and Johnny Cash were the only ways I could relate to the previous two generations of my mom's side of the family. Uh, it was all we had in common. Uh, and I just got back into it recently. I, I found old Lee Moses records uh-huh. that just, they blew me away. And and so I guess that's my current phase is soul and Motown and R&B, like old R&B. I'm not really into anything 79 or later, but, but I yeah, I, I, I go through those phases for multiple years too. Yeah. And so I, you know, at the risk of like, I, I'm sitting here feeling like, you know, I haven't answered the question very well or like, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and give you the answer that you hear sometimes it's like, Oh, I listen to everything. Cause that's not true. <laughs> I don't, there's definitely music I don't like because you're a critical thinker <laughs> and there's a lot of music that is not critically thought out. Right. Right. There's a lot of stuff out there that, yeah, that I, is not enjoyable for one reason or another, but, um, I'll I'll give anything a shot for sure, and I, there, I, there there's something in in just about every genre that I can dig at least a little bit. Um, you know, I'm not like at all. I would never consider myself like a big fan of like industrial or industrial metal necessarily, but like, um, and, and unless I hope I'm not miscategorizing them, but like Harvey Milk, um, I was listening to some one of their records recently um, that I forgot I had, and it's like not a huge, huge fan of it, but man, those cats knew what they were doing. Like very deliberate music. Yeah. Um, well, you, you can appreciate even if you don't love. Right, right, right. And I really, you know, so it helped me get a little more into it. Um, I'm like that I, with classical actually. Like my yeah? dad, well, growing up, my father was classical only ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I learned a lot about classical. I played in chamber orchestras. I was a v- violist and, uh, I, cello yeah cello is yeah. my favorite i wanted to play cello but they had too many cellists so they made me play viola <laughs> in like sixth grade and i stuck with it but uh but i never loved classical there are a few like really rousing like uh like beethoven's fifth kind of pieces that i can yeah. feel something to but for the most part it's just appreciation yeah. like i can analyze the music but i would rather listen to the early metal that came out of juilliard Mm-hmm. With classically trained musicians who were transferring that kind of uh, like classical thought into, you know, blistering guitar solos. And that to me, that's what I latch on to. Yeah. 
but I still analyze it. I analyze everything. I analyze every movie I watch, every song I hear. Yeah, you, and you can always pick out those guys that, that sound like they've got at least a little bit of classical training, like um, mm-hmm. uh, Angwe and uh, I guess to some extent like uh, Kirk Hammett or Dave Mustaine. Like, it's stuff Slash. freaks out every now and again. Slash, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just recently started uh, – I've got a – Two two boys, a three year old and a and an infant, and uh, I've just recently started kind of um, turning on a little bit of classical symphonic stuff. Uh, and the way that I got him introduced to it was with the um, the Superman main title march prelude sure. and and the Star Wars same like main title, Boston um, Pops stuff. Yep, yep, London Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops. It's like it's kind of like putting uh, melted cheese on the vegetables, you know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh so they dig it <laughs> yeah spoonful of sugar yep exactly exactly nice that was actually my dad introduced me to classical through the boston pops nice um listening to theme songs from my favorite movies so i i think you're on the right track hey there you go it did not instill a deep love of classical in me but it did instill an appreciation right 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 and it sticks in your brain like it'll just be with you forever so uh, do you write music i do yes i not currently but um yeah yeah i've written lots and lots of tunes and um my first year of graduate school especially i had more time on my hands than i really realized <laughs> and which is when i really dove into logic yeah and um and and wrote a bunch of songs i mean it's amazing like i had an acoustic guitar a microphone and um and a bass yeah. and that was it oh but, man that was my first <laughs> my first setup yeah. Blue Snowball, I think. <laughs> no, my first one would have been, like, back in high school, I got into, like, I got a four-track Tascam one. Oh, yeah. And I was into industrial at the time, and we would build, I guess I would build in my basement, uh, these extensive microphone Rube Goldberg setups with, like, vacuum cleaner parts and garden tubes and just any way I could to get these vocal effects that I couldn't afford to buy. Yeah. And then everything went digital and things got so much easier. Can you imagine? I mean, yeah, I, I like I was doing the same thing, like, you know, um, like sticking a microphone in the closet and like surrounding myself with like coats and everything yeah. to like deaden it or like it's across the room and you got to shout, but you got to dampen <laughs> everything in between. Yep. Like, oh, God, all the, the same thing. Yeah. Like when I was in high school, did the same kind of tricks. You know, everybody pitches in. To buy, you know, uh, like you said, you know, a Tascam or a Fostex four track, and you know, you got to learn how to bounce tracks because you've only got four. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and, you, wait a and, and you're punching and patching like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the and you know, and those things were like they weren't cheap. Like even the cheapest one, like four hundred bucks to you know. To I got wine for a hundred dollars used at the local pawn shop. Yeah, we. I don't know that we were that savvy yet. Uh, <laughs> I think we went straight to the guitar store. <laughs> and we made our, our. We released our first demo by sitting at the college library and copying one cassette at a time wow. on their like high-speed cassette copier. Wow. Which was basically designed for piracy. I don't know why those things existed legitimately. What was the... Right? Yeah. I mean, you go to the library and then you can just copy what's there that doesn't seem to fit in with the copyright system in america but even i remember at one point in time uh when when pioneer were one of the first companies to come out with multi-disc changer like a six disc cartridge thing that they had they also had a uh six cassette a six cassette player and you would fit them you'd, you'd slide them in there um lengthwise 
and I'm I don't know if you could record to five from one, but I know you could jump right, you know, boom, 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 boom. Um, yeah, that, that always, I, I always wondered that same thing too. Like how come nobody was complaining about tape sets being recorded? <laughs> I think it was because you couldn't, you couldn't pass uh, a mixtape around to the extent Fast that enough. you can upload an MP3 and hit, right. you know, everybody in the world instead of just your closest friends. Right. At that right, point right. it was like, yeah, let them, let the kids share their music. It's, it's good for sales. Yeah. Then let everyone got scared. Yeah, let them have their fun. Yeah, I have a uh, a Sony DVD player um, that's a, just a, a gorgeous machine. Uh, it was like their flagship like in 2003, right? Um, and it was the one year where they added um, like a root kit to it and it will not play uh, CDRs, you know, because you can just oh, imagine. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can imagine the corporate guys like, aha, I know how we'll beat them. We just won't have a machine that'll play it. Meanwhile, Sony, of course, is manufacturing CDRs, um, but it's just like that kind of like micro management, um, short sightedness, I guess you call yeah. it. Well, and now, if I recall correctly, um, apps like uh, what's the one that is great for copying DVDs? Uh, Handbrake. Yeah, Handbrake can apply the sectors to the disc that that bypass that kind of uh the the protection the location requirements and everything yeah yeah but yeah Hand, it's always been a, great it's been a hassle the entire time that's why i don't own any dvd or cd player anymore and i pretty much only buy unprotected music yeah. and movies I'm, although I'm i do moved. rent a lot on itunes i'm moving in that direction yeah we've we've definitely been renting more on itunes lately um but yeah i've, I've got the dvd player that's still down there and i've got a turntable uh, up in the attic, which will come down in a few years whenever I either get a, you know, a bigger house with a dedicated room or the kids grow up to where it's not going to get messed with. I sold my turntable a while ago along with stacks of vinyl and I didn't miss it for a year or two. Mm -hmm. And there have been so many times just in the last year that I really craved just sitting down and playing an LP Oh, I man. still have a bunch of seven inch like punk rock seven inch records laying around. Yeah. <laughs> I look at longingly. This episode of Systematic is brought to you by Text Expander 5. Text Expander helps you type faster. If you think about it, there are a lot of things that you type over and over again, such as email addresses, mailing addresses, phone numbers, common words or phrases, even your name. Then think about the redundant emails you have to send explaining the same thing on a regular basis. Now, imagine saving minutes, hours, and eventually days and weeks of your life by having TextExpander expand any text you want after you type short snippets. TextExpander will even show you your stats for exactly how much time it saved you, and mine has saved me 140 hours of typing in just the last six months. New in version 5, Text Expander suggests things that you should turn into snippets based on things it sees you typing regularly. Of course, you can turn it off if you're worried about privacy, but nothing ever gets sent to a server. It's just recorded in your own database and makes your life way easier. The way it used to work, you'd also need to remember all the snippets you'd created in order to make full use of them. Now, when you type something that you already had a snippet for, Text Expander will remind you with a little notification showing what you could have typed instead. Text Expander 5 requires Yosemite and it costs $44.95 in the US for new users. 
Upgrades are only $19.95 in the US for existing users, and the upgrade is free for anyone who purchased on or after January 1st, 2015. Save time and effort with Text Expander from Smile and support this show when you do by going to smilesoftware.com slash systematic. Thanks to Smile and Text Expander 5. All right. Well, time has kind of gotten away from me, so we should jump to top picks, which I think will continue the music discussion, if I remember yours correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So do I go first or you go first? You go first. Okay. All right. So uh, my first pick is the Ultimate Ears, uh, UE for short, uh, Boom speaker. And the Boom is just, you know, one of many uh, in the market now portable little Bluetooth speakers. Um, it's about the diameter of any kind of canned drink. Maybe it's closer to like the size of a can of Red Bull or something like that, but a little bit, uh, a little more girth to it. And uh, it is a great little speaker. Um, works really, really well outdoors. It's got a good bit of power to it. It actually, it's funny, it sounds much better outdoors than it does indoors for whatever reason i guess because it's a radial you know the speakers are on two sides and and so i guess when you give it room to breathe like that it does well you put it up on a tripod um but the thing that set that speaker apart for me from the others on the market was that it seemed to be the most durable of the bunch um (laughs) without buying one that was like marketed as like durable you know camping speaker Yeah, yeah 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 um so and in fact that has really it has really borne out it got tested but quick um i've knocked it over a couple of times like doing work outside like having it on a tripod or on a table um and knocked it off onto straight concrete um and my one-year-old will just grab it and just start to just gnaw on it um taking it to the beach had stuff spilled on it i mean i've owned this thing for like two months by the way and it's just been abused and has held up admirably like nothing wrong still sounds great looks great everything and um i think it i think it was like uh i i might have gotten it on sale for like 180 bucks and they retail for about 200 so they're not they're not cheap um but i like the idea of buying something that is well made that's gonna last right because you could buy a hundred dollar speaker but if you have to buy more than two of them over two years yeah it's a little more expensive yeah, my I do. My wife won a, a cylindrical speaker. I can't remember exactly, J J R E or can't remember who makes it, but it's got LED lights all around it that you can oh, program. JBL. JBL. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, that that one also like the 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 cylindrical format seems to work really well, especially outdoors. Like you said, it's uh it's yeah. a it's a good inv- It's also great to put. Like we, it sits on the dresser across from the bed and it's perfect for playing like Bonavar as you're falling asleep <laughs> and just getting like with the red LEDs turned on, just yeah. makes a nice atmosphere, but it's also great for outdoor parties. Yeah. That was one of the other ones that I looked at when I was kind of like comparison shopping. Yeah. I, I cannot vouch for its uh, durability. I, I will, uh. If I need, if I have children or spend any time at beaches, I will definitely look at the, uh, the boom. Uh, just throw it in the middle of your dogs one day and see what happens to it. Yeah. I, 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 I learned not to do that with anything <laughs> that happens enough unintentionally. Yeah. 
All right. Well, my, my first one, I, sh I should revamp these to be more music oriented, but I haven't had the time to put the thought into it. So my first one's going to be uh, an iOS game called Hue Ball, H-U-E Ball. And it's, it's a very graphically simple game where you shoot balls at other balls and they turn into bigger balls and you have to try to keep them from getting too big and balls can bounce back towards your cannon and explode and then you 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 die and <laughs> that's pretty much the entire game but it's one of those perfect waiting room time killer games right those and are nice to have yeah it's uh it's kind of like 2048 and 1010 are my other time killer games and yeah this one fit fit the bill nicely i think it just came out recently but I just discovered it recently. Nice. I'll check it out. Hue Ball. All right. I'm not writing it down right now. I also wrote down Moses Lee earlier because you probably. Lee Moses? Uh, excuse me. Lee Moses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely maybe. check that out. Get the, his yeah. first album was amazing. Yeah. When he I'm was extremely overweight. <laughs> um, all right. So. All right. Is it my turn again? It is. Number two. All right. So number two. Um. I'm going to uh, pick the piece of gear that I just got actually last week. Um, the pre-Sonus audio box USB, yeah. uh, which is what I'm piping through right now. Um, it is nice. It's simple. It's like well-built. Like it's a good steel chassis all the way around, like front and back. Um, well, they're the faceplate is plastic, but you know, I, I give them a little room for that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it, it, it has a good array of inputs. It's got, a, um, the combo kind of balanced and unbalanced inputs on the front pair of those, uh, each with its own little gain attenuator and MIDI ins and outs on the back, which I don't currently have use for, but I, I know how to use, uh, phones and then a dual bus main out on the back and uh, phantom power. Like, so it's basically, it's packed with stuff. Sounds good. No noise. $99. Hard to beat. Yeah. Uh, that that actually sounds like something I am currently in need of. You sent me a link to it before. I'm trying to track it down. Hold on. Did I? I you did. Have. You did. Okay. I know yeah, you yeah, did because yeah, right. I was just reading right. through this before we started recording. That's right. Yeah. I'll find it. I'll find it. I, okay. I did look at it at that point and, uh, and it did. It looked... Like it would fit my needs because I've been just using USB mics for a while now. Yeah, yeah. Which which have their problems, uh, connectivity, and you end up having to switch ports because you're getting uh, disconnections and issues that and garbling that you wouldn't get with a line level input that was then converted to a USB input. Not not as much uh, because right. I do a lot of uh, a lot of work. Let me see what is this. It's, uh, the Alesis IO Hub is my latest digital audio converter that I can plug a guitar into, and it works really well. I've never had an issue. Nice. But it has no preamp or anything in it. Oh, really? Well, it has... Well, I guess IO Hub, the name, it says it all, right? Right. It, can, it, can, it has phantom power, uh -huh. but it do, it, it's, very, it's just an on-off phantom power switch, and you do not get a lot of mixer control out of it. Which is fine yeah. for, you know, when you're recording line level in and you right. have all of your digital processors. But right. yeah, 
Yeah, which was goes to that audio lab that we were talking about a little before the show. The yeah, because uh, there's no yeah, there's no processing of any kind on the audio box. But um, I knew that wasn't going to be an issue uh, or a, a real concern. Um, yeah, it's nice to like I'm just using a, a standard issue uh, Shure kind of. It's actually a Behringer. It's a Shure SM58 knockoff. But like for the money, like it, I think it's would be tough to distinguish the, I know it's tough to distinguish the difference between the two you've got a lot more I think the difference is a lot more gain with the shore um, more clarity with more gain I guess I would say but beyond that like having that separate mic from the box um, you know like if you get a grounding issue or some kind of noise problem with the USB mic it's like what do you do yeah uh, <laughs> you're kind of stuck um, and and that kind of stuff happens like a lot uh, whenever you don't want it to basically yep um i've definitely learned that and and no offense to blue but you can do better than blue especially uh -huh. if you're recording music podcasting sure yeah but if you want an all-purpose mic setup those especially the icicle i tried the icicle for a long time uh -huh. like converting xlr mics to right. usb directly <clears throat> yeah that was that did not go well didn't work well not for me I yeah, I had looked. I, that was one thing I looked at the other day, and I was just like, you know, I'm just gonna go with what I know, like a, a straight interface. Um, I'd been using actually an old mixer for a long time, but um, that wasn't any good because it was just all analog. Right. And so there's the additional noise in the line. Uh, additional noise and additional components that you have to keep track of. Yep. 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 Um, although I do have like my my portable recording studio that's in a book bag that i've had since 1989 nice um yeah it's pretty cool like um uh da, 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 da. Oh, I, uh, so the elisa's io hub you said i'm gonna look at that too yeah kind of, yeah i'll throw okay. a link to that in the show notes too it's it wasn't cool. expensive i got it on sale i think i'm gonna make my next pick audio because i just got something fun and new uh the rocket 5 studio monitors uh-huh powered usb no powered Studio monitors, they take uh, uh, RCA in, uh -huh. and then you can uh, you can also run a, an eighth-inch uh, balance jack into it. But they are, <laughs> the instructions that come with them are standard, like, studio monitor instructions mm -hmm. where you have to, like, balance the sound and, and temper the speaker for 24 hours by uh -huh. playing, like, a, a track on repeat through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have to find the right height for it and everything. But I found that once I get it, I at first I only got one because it was literally just going to be a monitor. But then it sounded so good that I picked up a companion and made a stereo set out of them and using them in my little padded corner. Uh, uh -huh. uh, sound padding, not crazy padding. Right. Um, <laughs> they're they're wonderful. They're a little big for the small desk I have in my studio. But uh but they are they're excellent and uh, you can find them Massdrop keeps running them. You can get mm -hmm. them for about $50 cheaper than List mm -hmm. through Massdrop. And do you use Massdrop? No. Everyone uh -huh. should use Massdrop. It's so much fun. It's like a group buy. Uh-huh. And uh, you, everyone piles on to uh, a product until there are enough people to get a special discount price on it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's I've had. Okay. I've I just got a great set of Jiggler lockpicks. 
No kidding. That are, have you ever do you ever try to get into locksmithing at all? Um, not in the formal way. No, it's uh, uh, it's fun. I've I've used many many a credit card to get into back <laughs> in my a social days. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, but no, I, I I was looking at a set on. Um, where do they have it? Like on iFixit, I think, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, they iFixit. My first lockpick set was from iFixit, and then I bought a higher quality set. But then I found these jigglers, and you can just like, uh, basically, you apply torque with the jiggler itself, and just push them in and out, and it will eventually get the right combination. Usually within a couple minutes, and it's much less painstaking than like single tip picks. Really, I should just make that my third pick. That's a pretty good one. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I skipped ahead. What's your What's your third pick? <laughs> um, well, I was torn, but I think you settled it with, with the studio monitors. I'm gonna um, throw out the NHT, uh, which is short for Now Hear This. Yeah. Uh, NHT Super Zero monitors. Um, they were originally released, I think, in 1994, 95, 94. And I got my first pair. I got my the pair of them. I still have probably five years after that was when I first kind of came into awareness. Um, and it's another another one of these products where it's like you do not have to spend ten zillion dollars or anywhere close to get really 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 good um, audio reproduction. And these are not like studio monitors per se. They're meant for home, right? So like. Yeah. You know, mini monitor, bookshelf monitor, whatever you want to call them, um, and there, like the one caveat that would come with those is that they were designed to be really good speakers, and they don't go, they roll off really sharply. I think at like or like ninety hertz or 80, 80 hertz, something around there, and so there's no effectively like no bass, right? Yeah. So so you can't get them and expect like a anything like what you'd hear even with the crappy bookshelf speaker that has sort of the fake bass from just a bunch of air moving around inside. Right, yeah. Um, and, and it's designed to be that way because they were like, okay, this is going to be really good at what it does, which is mid-range to high-end, you know, high-range frequencies. And the most amazing thing apart about them is, just like you were talking about with your rockets, is the once you get the placement right, I mean, it's just all, all bets are off. Um, kind of like the reference tune I used was uh, a couple of them, but um, Paul Simon Homeless from Graceland. Yeah. Um, and it's like these two little tiny speakers would throw a soundstage like you couldn't believe. I mean, it just, it, it's like the whole group, the whole chorus is right there in front of you. Um, so they were out of production for a long time. And then like the company kept trying to iterate, you know, and improve and tighten this up and that up. And, uh, they were just never as good. So they finally were just like, forget it. And, you know, dusted off the original schematic for it and, uh, started producing the original version again a couple of years ago. I I'm, think I'm seeing the NHT super one 2.1, but you said nah. super zero, which super zero. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I've, I, there are a couple of them on Amazon, but they all have the, uh, discontinued by manufacturer label on them no way they discontinued them again huh <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but yeah 
I mean, I guess I've already got mine, so I didn't have to need to buy them or keep <laughs> you, you up. You can them. find them though; they are still out there. Yeah, that yeah. The Super One was the big brother to it. The Super One Two Point One, I guess, obviously is one of the new iterations of it. But well, then I hate putting a product out there that's like not available. No, you, you, there. I think it says um, there are thirteen of them available on Amazon. Okay. So, well, first come, first serve. Yeah, exactly. But Maybe yeah, like. I, I didn't I always thought I needed a subwoofer and big bass and lots of volume. Yeah. And then I grew up. Yeah. And just last year, uh, thanks to uh, Matt Ward, I learned that a good pair of speakers generally doesn't require a subwoofer and you get a full range of sound and you can actually hear music the way that it was recorded yeah. instead of like you were in a dance club. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly, exactly. And to really truly tune a subwoofer properly so yeah. that it blends seamlessly with with the monitors is hard to do like yes. really hard it's a two-person job like <laughs> i i would like always just like inch it one way and be like how's it sound now um wow two used from 150 dollars for these super zeros i think i'm gonna look at the same link that you are and at 150 bucks like they retailed for 250 for the pair yeah uh, or 250 a piece excuse me i think so i think but yeah either way 150 jump on it uh, all right. Well, uh, my my other pick was going to be workflow and how I'm using it on my new Apple Watch, but I, I will save that one. I, I, I do have to say that last night I went out on the new deck we've built and mm -hmm. was looking at the sky and there was too much backlighting. So I picked up my watch, tapped twice and turned the lights off behind me inside the house. Man. And that felt so cool. That's awesome. And That's every awesome. time I do that, I think, man, when I was a kid. Can you believe? Yeah. <laughs> I have a great <laughs> appreciation for the amazing technology that I get to use every day. Absolutely. I mean, that that's a great example. And I guess I could probably sit and think of some more of them like that if I wanted. But that, that sums it up nicely. That's a good one. Well All done. right. Thank well you. Done. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, and I guess that will be the end of the episode. We're at time. And uh, I would like to thank you for making a third appearance as our resident neuropsychologist. I almost <laughs> said psychiatrist. It's almost offensive. Um, but thank you for being here. Absolutely. And, and thanks again for, for having me on. And it was uh, nice to, to kind of like, I guess, um, like uh, be a little less, less formalized this time around. Less too. shop talk? Yeah, man. Yep. <laughs> All right. And you, you are H button. H-B-U-D-D-I-N on Twitter. Correct. And you have a website called Neuropsych Now, which is where you Correct. do a lot of your advocacy for the profession yeah. and for the technology, I guess. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that's um, that's the, the labor of love, I guess. Uh, myself and another neuropsychologist up in Maryland, a uh, guy named Mark, Mark Testa. Uh, he's been my partner, on crime, mar partner in crime on that one. All right. Is there anywhere else you want to list? Uh, sure. If you're in South Carolina and you need a neuropsychologist, um, <laughs> I'm at uh, scneuro.com um, and howardbutton.com. They're kind of really sort of the same site content-wise. Okay. Content uh, <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. All right. I will drop those in the show notes. And I am TT Scoff everywhere. And, uh, and at brettterpster.com. Although I think 
I think that if you go to ttscoff.com, I have to check this because I keep moving these around, but yep, I'm literally ttscoff everywhere, including ttscoff.com redirects to my website. Nice. I never even tried that. I I, I, I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks everybody for listening. And thanks again, Howard. And we'll see everybody in a week. Thank you.